Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Cornell University, located in the lush beauty of Ithaca, New York, is known for its international and progressive approach to academics. It was the 1970s. Bell-bottomed students traipsed across the elegant grounds, chatting about majors, smoking pot, and discussing their hopes that Jimmy Carter could maybe bring a real change to American politics. Weaved amongst them was a quiet, awkward, agricultural engineering major. He was already stalking, picking out women, following them, and getting a perverse thrill in scaring them. He is Ivy League serial killer named Michael Bruce Ross. Wow, well, Sarah, we are doing the Cornell serial killer this week, yeah. which is a case I always think I'm familiar with most cases. I really was completely unfamiliar with this case. Absolutely. And I think I just want to remind our listeners that this is a true crime podcast. This is a very brutal, we go into murders, serial murders, sexual violence, violence against just, children. And just, it's definitely listener warning. We really try in, in this podcast not to dwell on the actual act of violence and to look more at the reasons behind that. Exactly. Why don't we just get right to it, Sarah? Thanks for everyone for hanging in there with us. We, with our editor, Joe, have put a lot of work into trying to fix our audio, so hopefully things are going to sound a lot better this week. That's right. And there's tons of people, but there's just tremendous amounts of support going on, and we're super grateful for that. Oh, this podcast community is... It's fantastic. Laura and I were joking around that it's people, like, from all walks of life and you know Laura and I were joking around like we are the world you know because it's like the, even like the true crime podcasting world and beyond what are some of the stranger podcasts that you've or not stranger but the themes outside of true crime that you have oh, I mean they, they I mean there's plumbing podcasts. <laughs> I love it um, there is a niche for everybody but a, okay a couple of your favorites I think before words I think we got to Casey from Before Words. Yeah, Yeah. I just, I mean, I listened to that with Lily, and who's my daughter, who's 18, and it's just so exciting that somebody would get her that into words. Well, but explain, these are like five-minute segments of going into the etymology of certain words, and the guy is funny, and he does a great job, and they're like little word candies in a a funny way. Oh, right, and I love Zach from Drinks with Great Minds in History. I mean, what a, a brilliant podcast that is. 
is. And we've had a couple of people do wonderful shout outs and run our promos, Murder and Such, on episode 67. And we listened to it and fantastic. I'm a huge Hunter fan. I love Murder and Such, so that's a real honor. And I have to give a shout out to my podcast mentor, Nicole, and Quite Unusual podcast because she's been so helpful and really walking me through the audio and the day-to-day struggles and their podcast's phenomenal. Another one I'm able to listen to with my daughter and we just have a blast listening to the Elisa Lamb case together and it was so well done. Oh yeah. And they're funny and I'm I'm getting kind of coolness credibility from all these podcasters I'm connected (laughs) with with my daughter. So there's many And there's Back Roads as well. Oh, oh, Back Road Legends phenomenal um, JC we are the world <laughs> Ross at Missing Molly I mean we have there's so many but I could go on and on and on with my Academy Award speech so let's <laughs> let's get to the let's get to let's so get let's to talk, some, let's talk about Michael Bruce Ross. right let's get down to some true crime Ross was born July 26th in 1959 in Brooklyn Ken- not the Brooklyn you're thinking of, okay? <laughs> Brooklyn spelled the same way in Connecticut. And Brooklyn's a small rural town of about 8,000. It was a middle-class farming community. And he was born to a very young couple who were married right out of high school, right? Daniel and Pat Ross. Right. Weren't they married due to an unplanned pregnancy? Unplanned pregnancy. And so Pat Ross, his mother, she hated this small rural farm yes. community. And she never stopped really blaming Michael, right, for trapping her in this existence that she hated. And she had three more children after that. The marriage was terrible, right? It was super rocky. And she had some mental illness, and she was hospitalized several times because she had thoughts of suicide and of harming the children. So she was very abusive mentally and physically to Ross. I mean, he was a bedwetter. She used to hang out his sheets to humiliate him. It's awful. He was a bedwetter until his early teens. Yeah, until adolescence. She eventually ran off with another man briefly to North Carolina and then did come back and got hospitalized, but they do eventually get divorced. And now Ross was sexually assaulted by an uncle at a very young age, right? right? Yeah, I think between like five and eight. Oh, God. He was, yeah, he was raped and sexually abused by his uncle. When Ross was eight, his uncle, who was 16 at the time, committed suicide. And he left a note, and in the note he blamed his suicide on the fact he couldn't live anymore because of his homosexuality. Oh, so So he awful. didn't admit to the sexual abuse. He, he basically uh, blames the victim. Right. Know. I think one of the marked things that about Ross is he grew up on this farm, and I think at the age of eight, his job was to pick out the weak chickens and throttle their necks. And he later on says that this was a precursor to his sort of violence later on. Imagine an eight-year-old kid having that duty. I know farm life is farm life. My dad grew up on a farm and I think there's a certain reality about killing animals when you live on a farm, but I can't imagine assigning that duty to an eight-year-old boy. Ross, early on, and we know this because he talks about it, he starts to get some sexual satisfaction, some sexual arousal from killing the animals. There's So early on, there's indicators that he's just not, yeah. And there's a 
connection with sex and violence. So this is something that these obsessive thoughts start for him very young. He says that this starts to happen about this time. So it's not so much, you know, that he had to, in my opinion, kill the animals because he lived on a farm, but it's that he enjoyed killing the right, animals. Right, right, So like indicator number one, bedwetting, harming animals, because that was your job at eight. But he was also highly intelligent. You know, Ross did extremely well in school. He had a high IQ. He was a high achiever, but he gets himself into Cornell at this point. Yeah, and let's just say about high school, I mean, he was able to maintain friendships. He had a relationship. And we have to say that Ross presented very normally. He was a nice-looking guy. He was mild-mannered. He's frightening because I think if you had met him or he had been in your high school, you would never know what he would become. Yeah, he reminds me a little bit of Bundy. I mean, not quite as charismatic. So Cornell, Laura, is basically the perfect hunting ground for Ross. And he's increasingly consumed with violent fantasies. He began stalking women and getting a thrill out of their fear. And so this is Ross in his own chilling words. Stalk women. Then when I got to college, somehow they start degrading, going into more violent fantasies. Uh, That's when my rape fantasies first started, was when I was in college. I started following women home, and I would get a thrill by them knowing that I was following them, that they would be scared, and, you know, that that gave me a thrill. And then it got to the point where I actually raped someone at Cornell, and then uh, the next person I actually raped and killed. I understand also Ross also at this time had a serious girlfriend who was a member of the ROTC, which is the military on campus. And she had an unplanned pregnancy, which ended in abortion. Interestingly, he had a lot of guilt about, uh, because he was raised Catholic, he had this kind of haunted him for the rest of his life. Interesting that he was able to disassociate in some ways, but still have this guilt. And he was also, something you may not know, he was a TA in college, which is a teacher's assistant. Oh, God, that's terrifying. Yeah. So he he was... He had plenty of access to young, vulnerable... Right. And... Undergrads. The girlfriend takes a commission overseas, and then that relationship ended. So I think he was also triggered by the end of the relationship and also the abortion. Yeah, this seems to be a theme with him, that he's hurt by women. It triggers a rage that then triggers violent behavior. Who knows if her classmate Ross even registered to the pretty Dung Knock 2 Two was a master graduate who was pursuing a graduate degree in economics at Cornell, and she was a Vietnamese immigrant who wanted to work for international aid organizations to help farmers in developing countries. So I guess Ross and Two took a class together, and that's how he knew her. As we've mentioned, the breakup and the abortion was a trigger for Ross, so he finally gives in to his desires one night, and he stopped, raped, and strangled Two. He threw her body off of a bridge, Laura. And at first, her death was ruled a suicide. Where he threw her was a place where there were fairly frequent suicide. It was thought that she had gone there to commit suicide. Friends and family who knew her were like, no way, she's full of life, she's got a great bright future ahead of her. Then the police, when they recover her body, they find clear signs of strangulation and rape. However, Tu's murder went unsolved for years. We don't get too much into the details, but he had a clear signature, which is that he had them lie on their stomachs and he strangled them from behind. Manually. Manually. So he didn't use a ligature. But he he, would often promise them after the rape that he would let them go. Right. And that 
was not. Right, in that. So that was his first murder. Right. So after Chu's murder, Ross was consumed with thoughts of suicide and remorse. And he vowed, like, never to murder again. I think this is what's interesting about Ross as well. I think he really did feel a lot of, like, remorse and guilt. But he had this compulsion he couldn't help, you know. And so this was 1981. Over the next few years, he doesn't successfully resist his temptations, and he would murder seven more innocent women. And like you said, he would always use the same signature. And after he graduates, he moves to Lewiston, North Carolina, which is the home of Purdue Farms. This tiny town has only 630 people in it. Sarah, so he, he rented a trailer and he lived there, but he established his stalking grounds and he his stalking began immediately. We should say too that Ross practiced something called geolocation for serial killers, meaning that his hunting grounds, whether he was at Cornell, North Carolina, later on in Connecticut, he doesn't go much more than three miles outside of his radius, right. basically. Which is common. So during this period of his life, he happens to be in North Carolina, but his habit of stalking women culminates now, October 25th, 1981. He actually stalks a woman who is walking with her baby and he attacks her and she cooperates because he threatens the baby. This is part of his control masochism. He leaves her for dead. He, he thinks she's dead. However, she does live. She doesn't identify him until he gets arrested much later on. Right, basically. but eventually she will identify him. So this behavior is obviously continuing and escalating. And at a seminar in Illinois, Ross got restless. He started wandering the streets. And he comes across Priscilla, who's a local 15-year-old. And she notices him following her and tries to avoid him but he actually grabs her Sarah in broad daylight she screams as she's dragged into the woods and fortunately for her somebody heard the scream and called the police that's right and I think he was arrested for that yes this right so and he winds up getting arrested but he he's only arrested for assault but it's very he gets like two months probation I think that people thank God take assault a lot more seriously these days I think it was kind of not taken as seriously uh, no it definitely then. it definitely yeah. was so so he returns to Connecticut he's living with his parents after his arrest and true to form Ross begins stalking again in earnest and his thoughts are still consumed with murder and rape and his next victim lived less than a mile from his house and that was Tammy Williams who was 17 she actually knew him she knew him from high school from high school right, yeah, right. Still, I'm sure in a, t- a town that small anyway you would know a lot of locals that's right and since she since she knew him he claimed that's why he had to kill her basically right which I'm sure was not the reason I'm sure he would have killed her anyway that's right so she was missing for two and a half years and it really did change that little town in in Connecticut oh it did I mean prior to that people didn't lock their doors they really had a feeling of being in this safe peaceful community and after that happened that all changed like people started locking their doors yeah and they were kind of wary of their neighbors because nobody knew who it was 
That's right, and so his next victim in March of, of 1982, this one, I don't know why, Paula Pereiro just really, oh my God, have you seen her picture? She's such a like little, they're all, oh, it just breaks my heart, but. Well, I think geez, I related to her a little too because they said she was a real wild child. Totally, yeah, she, no, exactly, she, me too. I can totally see right. being like, hey, screw you, mom and dad, I'm hitchhiking, right. you know? and she like and, loved meeting colorful people and she believed the best in everybody, so despite warnings from friends she she would say like oh i just don't let the the creepy people pick me up which is the problem with someone like ross because he doesn't present as creepy he presents as like some normal business guy who's gonna give these girls a ride and he's just doing the next right thing and it's like no he's a total monster behind this very normal facade actually sarah on his previous attack he attacked the girl wearing a suit oh it's a perfect cover if yeah, you think about it co- right you know, he's not with tattoos with a beard down to his chest and and his his next attack is, is a little surprising because he actually stalks an off-duty police woman that's bold and he knocks on her door and asks if he could use the phone and she reluctantly lets him in after asking for ID and he actually provides his real ID which shows me that he was planning on killing her obviously because she would never be able to ID him but kind of surprising she let him in but he immediately attacked her and she was actually able to pull his hair which made him lose his footing and as she ran for her gun he ran away and again he's given this total like slap on the wrist even though this is the second serious assault that the police are aware of he gets what one month in prison that's nothing and and actually by this time his parents have been divorced and his lawyer uses this as you know he's a grown man at this point but the lawyer uses this as an excuse excuse for his behavior. After his tiny stint in prison, he's released back to Brooklyn, Connecticut, where he immediately picked up his his old habits. Okay, so on June 15th, 1982, Deborah Smith Taylor and her husband were driving home and they had been out partying and they ran out of gas. They got into a big fight and she actually stormed off. I think they both stormed off. I don't think he took it too super seriously at the time. He just figured, you know, she would be okay. And that was the last time she was seen alive. Her body would be found three months later and Deborah was only 23 years old. So just starting her life. I think it's interesting to note too that there is some passage of time between the victims and what Ross apparently would kind of try to resist these impulses. We learn later from his own words that he did fight these impulses and then something would often trigger him and he would give in. And so in November of 1983, he picked up Robin Stavinsky, who was a very bubbly 19-year-old from Norwich, Connecticut. And, and killed her. Yeah, she was last seen, you know, walking home from work, which was just like a normal thing, safe area. And her body was found near the Norwich Hospital by a jogger. And I think what's law enforcement is not putting these cases together yet. There is some behavior now is going to start to pick up and escalate as far as time frames go because his next victim will be about eight months later on April 22nd, 1984. We've talked about it too. I think these next two victims are really difficult to talk about. I think in part because I have a daughter who's this age, but these two particularly are difficult. These are two tough ones and... And because his crimes are escalating. The frequency is escalating and 
April Brunias and Leslie Shelley were just the absolute best of friends. They considered themselves sisters. They even had made like a fake birth certificate so that they could be official sisters. Right, and they're typical teens. You know, tell their parents that they're going to the movies and they tell their parents they have a ride home, which right. is BS. And unfortunately, they hitchhiked home with, with Ross. Hitchhiking was a lot more common in the 70s and then even in the early 80s. So I don't think there was the same level of fear associated with it. So a serial killer like Ross is going to take advantage of, of that course. naivete. Right. Know? This crime, I'm not going to get into the details on this crime because it's, it's actually really a, a bit too brutal. And because he does murder both of them and he brutally rapes and murders both of them and I, just... I think he's completely out of control at this point yeah so, I mean, and it, his behavior is escalating and it's only two months later when Ross encounters his final victim and it's so chilling to listen to him talk about stalking the victims because he says once I saw her she was dead that's what he right his own words this is Wendy Barabo this is his final victim and how old was Wendy? She was seven. She was 17. 17, right. And I also want to mention that his final three, April, Leslie, and Wendy, are all from Griswold. Okay. It was very close to his house. Right. So, yes. he, so, so he's practicing geolocation. Right. So again. this was obviously completely would shock this community. I think he's very blatant with Wendy. He does it in a very public thoroughfare. He, there are several witnesses who saw his car and they see this white male struggling with a young female getting into the car. And this, the blatancy of this would actually be the downfall of Ross. Yeah, he, he is totally out of control at this point. I mean, he almost appears he doesn't even care if he gets caught. I mean, to grab her and broad date. part of him probably, not to say, oh, he's a serial killer with a conscience. I think he does still feel guilt. And I think he does, he knows enough to know what he's doing is messed up. And he's, I think he wanted to get caught at this point. Yeah, and he's smart enough. I think he could have gotten away with a lot more and really been a Ted Bundy. I am not giving him any positive attributes that he doesn't deserve, but I think he did it so blatantly that he that he was caught. And, and part of how they caught him, Laura, was that the witnesses, they see this blue Toyota, right? Mm -hmm. They see this blue Toyota and the Connecticut police go ahead and they run all the blue Toyotas, you know, in their in their database, basically. Which is over, I think, over 3,000. Over 3,000. Right. But he's so close that he's probably one of the first logical people to talk to. I think if not the first. I mean, that's how close the proximity was. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And when Michael Melchek assigned chief investigator after the murder of Wendy Barabal, and I, I think that's maybe when they're starting to put everything together. Sure. And, yeah. and that would be in 1984. And so they have quite a few witnesses. And this really kind of an interesting dynamic when he goes to interview Ross. When Melchek goes and speaks to yes. Ross. Yes, I mean, it, it because he doesn't suspect him. He doesn't. I mean, Ross is, once again, very respectable insurance salesman kind of guy, mild manner. He doesn't fit the typical criminal profile. Not at all. And it's actually Ross that starts to drop hints and kind of like entice him into wanting to know more. Because he talks about his former things that he was arrested for. Right, which, which is... sexual nature. Super yeah. bizarre. I mean, if you didn't want to be a suspect, you wouldn't admit to your prior 
bad axe. That's right, yeah. Malchuk immediately kind of, his spidey senses go up and he immediately decides to bring him down to the precinct and, and Ross agrees. It's some pretty good, I'd say impressive. I mean, you do this in, in, in somewhat of a different way, but maybe you can talk to how he really kind of like endears himself to Ross. Oh, absolutely. Melchek really ingratiates himself with Ross and they're talking about everything. They're talking about relationships and he's kind of doing the good cop, I'm your buddy kind of thing. And that's when Ross confesses, not only to Wendy Barabo's murder, but also to seven more murders. And I bet Melchek was just shocked. I bet he was shocked that Wendy, let alone seven more murders. He's got a serial killer, basically Connecticut's only serial killer in front of him in that interview room. It must have just been astonishing. He almost seems relieved to finally be caught and he confesses openly and freely and he almost enjoys talking about his experience and he will wind up getting convicted of four of these murders. And that's enough to, to give him the death penalty in Connecticut which, I mean, we live in the Northeast. It's almost shocking that the death penalty was even used, would be given to somebody even in the 80s, but it was. Because he, nobody had been executed in Connecticut since 1960. So, I mean, it had been a long, long time, but Ross would go to death row and spend 18 years on death row. I just want to back up too and say that there was really sort of no contest. It took the jury 86 minutes of deliberation to convict him. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even get into the trial because he confesses and he, I mean, it really becomes more of a capital, because it's a capital case, they have to, even if you confess, you still have to have a sentencing hearing. Right. right. So they decide unanimously that he deserves the death penalty. And he agrees with this as well. He does, not as much initially as he will come to in time, but yes, he he does have, like you said, he's kind of, and it does sound odd to say that, but he does, he's extremely introspective for a killer, and he does recognize that he's in a sense a monster. So Laura, even when Ross was in prison, he was still haunted by all of these fantasies. And he would relive his murders in fantasy and he'd basically get off on them. And he was still kind of tortured by all of this um, until he Basically, he got help. Yeah, there's actually even a instance where he was near a female guard and he was so overtaken by his compulsions that he to, actually... To hurt her. To hurt her, that he actually ran away from her and she... Yelled out. Yelled, yelled you know, out, yeah. but he did that to avoid harming her. I don't want it to make it seem as though I don't understand what a monster Ross was. And I think, as you've pointed out, law enforcement officers and people who dealt with him prison were very, very aware of how dangerous he was. In fact, yeah, there's a quote from one of the officers involved regarding somebody like Ross. He said, you were involved in a case with a suspected criminal. You realize that they can often be quite noteworthy adversaries. These criminals are psychopathic, cunning, and sophisticated liars. 
This sadist views himself as more intelligent than the rest of society, especially law enforcement personnel. Additionally, he has usually mastered the art of deception. Even if he is confronted with hard evidence, he will invariably rationalize his actions. He will not be moved by pleas for compassion because he's unable to feel guilt. And in fact, somebody like Ross, the difference is, my understanding at least, is the difference is a normal person, when they see another person in pain, they feel empathy. A sexual sadist and psychopath like Ross, that's actually the gives him excitement. Dr. Fred Berlin figures in for this case for Ross. And, and who is Dr. Berlin? Dr. Berlin's an American psychiatrist and sexologist. And he is one of the leading experts in sex offenders and in chemical castration, which is really his area of expertise. Isn't his whole what you were telling me is his philosophy is basically these are people who suffer from grave mental illnesses and that this is treatable and should be treated as such. Right. He sees that the alternative is much worse, that most sex offenders will re-offend so that as a society, his, he's of the view that we're better off treating people because most of them will be re-released into society, monitoring them, and you know treating it really almost like an illness. But he also deals with sexual sadists, and it, most notably, he worked on the Jeffrey Dahmer case. Yeah. And so Dr. Berlin was really instrumental in, in treating Michael Ross, and here's what Berlin had to say about Ross. In talking with Mr. Ross, uh, he would, in terms of everyday relationships, um, have respect for other people. Uh, where he began to have difficulty is in situations where he would begin to feel sexual arousal. Uh, what he had said to me is that for as long as he could remember, when it came to be sexually aroused, he was plagued with these fantasies, with these urges, with these thoughts about wanting to uh, harm and subjugate and even murder women. And this was extremely arousing for him. I remember him telling me at one point he would try to talk himself out of leaving his home for fear that when he left his home, these thoughts would be there and he'd have the urge to go out and stalk women with these thoughts running through his head. It became clear to me very early, both in terms of a knowledge of what Mr. Ross had done and in terms of what he was telling me, that he was very likely a sexually disordered individual. In other words, it's very likely that his sexual makeup was very different from the norm. Uh, any man is certainly capable physically of assaulting a woman and even of murdering her, but the average man is not having intense recurrent sexual fantasies and urges about doing so, and certainly not having those fantasies and urges to the point where it's a daily struggle to prevent himself from acting in such a fashion. Mr. Ross was describing these kinds of recurrent abnormal sexual fantasies for me, and it was almost a textbook description of what is in the psychiatric literature of someone who has the sexual disorder of sexual sadism. So after Berlin basically diagnoses Ross, and Ross decided that, that chemical castration would be the best treatment for him. And teamed with psychoanalysis. Teamed with, right, not in itself, exactly. And being treated with... Uh... With Depo-Provera, which is, which is really what Berlin specializes in. So Sarah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Depo-Provera. It's, it's arousal, right. What Depo-Provera does is it reduces testosterone levels. It's actually, ironically, a birth control for women as well, but it reduces testosterone levels in males, and it is commonly called chemical castration. I didn't really realize this, but there are a number of states that require 
certain sex offenders to be chemically castrated. I think it's California, Texas, Alabama now has new legislation about it. And basically it lowers libido. It's called an anaphrodisiac, meaning away from aphrodisiac. Right. And it curbs sexual desire. These men are still able to perform sexually, but the compulsion is greatly cut down. So Berlin, he's a pretty controversial character. Well, I think the whole concept of chemical castration is pretty controversial. Just focusing on Ross, I think what it did is it relieved Ross According to Ross, and I have a tendency to, I do believe him because I feel like if Ross was trying to get clemency or if he was lobbying for a number of appeals and this kind of like, hallelujah, I'm now I'm saved kind of thing, which you do see with a lot of lifers or people on death row. But he's not. He was lobbying for his own death. In fact, he hired attorneys to assist him with speeding up. He was like, life is no, this is more of a punishment. More of a punishment for me. What I'm saying is I think he has a lot of credibility in that he says that he got a lot of relief through treatment. He's still a monster. He still has fantasies and compulsions and they're just lessened. But it does enable him to begin to read, to begin to do other things. Wait, to read? No. Just to, read novels to, to, you know. Right. It takes his mind off, off of. And he, he's way. not plagued so much by these continuous, Berlin likens it to an addict, you know, with the constant thought of the drug, which was so disruptive. No, the constant thought of the fantasies. Right. But no, he, I'm likening it to a drug addict. Oh, oh you I know, see. You know, with I the see. thought yeah. process. Gotcha. Um, um, and this this reduced sex drive now w- enabled him to do other, do other things. things. Because, uh, because remember, he's also highly intelligent. And Ross himself will sort of say, like, the volume on the fantasies, it was like having like a stereo like on, on 10 all the time. And so what this drug did for him was just reduce the volume down so that he could focus on other things. He's highly intelligent. He wasn't he translating math and science texts into Braille. He was learning Braille basically. And so he was doing this from his death row cell. It's quite apparent when he talks about his crimes, though, that he still does get a rush and somewhat a... No, he's still a a monster. He's still, you know, he, he does get kind of excited discussing his infamy. But it does enable him... Now, I'm a libertarian, so you know me i'm i got for really firm punishments for um sex offenders but this does cross a lot of lines and well well i think also some of the arguments that are against chemical castration was that you can't use a medical procedure as a punishment but i think in the case of ross he wants some relief well i i'm actually and i think that that berlin is of that school of thought where he wants to help people who much like addiction who want that help and you know chemical castration has historically been abused oh absolutely i mean there was you know with eugenics there were time where prisoners were castrated and sterilized so that they wouldn't you know there was this thought that they would reproduce more criminals. So I think it's something we definitely have to be aware of. But I think Berlin does give us an insight into the affliction of a sex offender that was kind of an awakening for me. It's true. And I do think that the argument about chemical castration and the death penalty kind of dovetail in a way. Laura, I I, I think you would probably, as a libertarian, I think you would probably agree 
with my argument against something like chemical castration or the death penalty is that I don't want the state to come in and dictate whether people should be killed for their crimes or whether they should be physically or chemically castrated. I don't want the state having that right. I, I have to say I agree and I, I, like many things, may change my mind on that. Although I've had, had a, a murder in my family it was my husband's brother, and he and I feel differently about the death penalty. I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that people who have had different experiences feel differently about this. Well, and, and in a very practical way, if the death penalty were effective, then great. You right, know, it's not it, a deterrent. It, 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 it's not a deterrent. But I won't get off on a death. I could talk about the death penalty all day, but I won't. So Ross does wind up spending 18 years in entirety on death row, and he reconnects with his faith. He says the rosary every day. I'm not sure that he has the capability to really experience true remorse, or if he's feigning that. And as you said, he, he doesn't fight his own execution. He almost welcomes death and feels he's been forgiven by God. So he kind of takes this, we see this often in prison. But I just want to also speak briefly to the fact that Ross had such the trifecta for being a, a serial killer. Okay, he had a mentally ill mother who was extremely critical and abusive of him. He was sexually abused by his uncle. He was killing chickens at the age of eight because that was his job. He was urinating in the bed until his early teens. He exhibited, uh, you know, sociopathic behavior young. He, he showed a disregard for others, no conscience, guilt, or shame. And But you wonder with somebody like Ross, who was intelligent, whether if he had gotten help early on or one of those things were not in place. And he's very adamant about what I kind of appreciated about what Ross had to say was he was very adamant that he was like, Please do not blame my mother or my childhood on this. This is all me. He owns it, which is refreshing because I think oftentimes people really do delve into their childhoods and try to make it about that. But it, on the face of it, he really has, he is like, if you were to put together a recipe for a serial killer, Michael Bruce Ross is it. Yeah, he, he really had them all. And I think that he even he would probably admit that, that nobody is safe around him if he's not locked up. This by no means, the chemical castration, like you said, this doesn't medically change your brain makeup. So, I mean, he was still a pedophile. He still had these fantasies. They were just diminished. He would not fight his execution and... That's right. And he fought them the whole way. He did not. Actually, interesting little anecdote. One of those attorneys who tried to file for him, he later sent a note to, which was opened at a later time, which I'll, I'll, I'll give you the punchline of a little bit later. Oh, you're such a tease. I'm a tease. Yeah. <laughs> he spends this, you know, this time on death row, and there hasn't been a, a, death, a death penalty carried out in Connecticut since 1960. So this is a really controversial case. And you have people really on both sides that are really pretty vocal about their feelings about this execution being carried out. Even one of his intended victims spoke out about against him being executed. 
I believe. He waived his final rights to appeal and Ross was executed in Summers, Connecticut at the Osborne Correctional Institution. And outside there were a massive amount of people both for his execution, praising it and protesting the death penalty. And this would be the last execution Connecticut has seen since. And my punchline is that upon opening this note after he was executed, Ross had written to his attorney checkmate, meaning he won in the end. And that was perhaps this was him having control until the, the bitter end. He had no final words. He didn't pick a elaborate final meal. He just went to his death. That's Michael David Ross. I mean, a very, a very fascinating serial killer and the only serial killer that I'm aware of that went to an Ivy League school. Ivy League Murders. Our music is composed by Russell Jarvis. Our researcher is Christy Wagner. We're all from Cambridge, repping 38. If you'd like to support us, please do the following. Hit the subscribe button, give us five stars, tell your friends to listen, and support us on our Patreon, where you can find us under Ivy League Murders.